You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Dr. Jeffrey Mishlov, host of the PBS show called New Thinking Aloud, joins us for a fascinating exploration of the new paradigm and the many changes that have taken place in the 30 to 40 years in consciousness studies, energy healing, and psi phenomena, among other fields of inquiry. From his website, one finds this quote, We are living at a unique historical moment, a time when the old divisions between matter and spirit are giving way to a new unified vision. It is my pleasure to share with you, he says, several avenues for understanding and participating in this exciting awakening of consciousness. He is a licensed clinical psychologist, an accomplished radio and television interview, and Mishlov is the author of an encyclopedic volume of consciousness studies entitled The Roots of Consciousness. He is as well the past director of the Association for Humanistic Psychology. He served as the president of the Intuition Network, and he is artistic designer of the copyrighted Rainbow Yin Yang, director of the Intuition Network, and Dean of Transformational Psychology at the University of Philosophical Research, provides online graduate-level degree programs. Thank you for joining us again, Jeffrey. Hi, it's a pleasure to be with you once again after so many years. Yeah, well, I'm so glad to see that your PBS show is, is on and running, New Thinking Aloud again. You've been at this a really long time. Well, I, I need to make a minor correction. Please do. New, New Thinking Aloud is a YouTube channel. Okay. The original Thinking Aloud series was out on the satellite over public television. Uh, at one time, we were carried by over 100 stations, but uh, the revised, uh, updated version is only available on YouTube. All right, called New Thinking Aloud. So then go to www.newthinkingaloud.com, right? That's correct. And find the link for the... Well, it's great. You know, the advantage to all of the phenomena on the Internet is that there's so many voices now and so many opportunities. But I think for people who are just beginning, it's a little overwhelming because how do you know what's good and what's not? So I like to, as you do, bring on, you know, people who can really steer the audience in a way that will be beneficial. You started so long ago in this arena of consciousness. Why? What what attracted you? Well, um, I had an interest uh, initially in the field of religious mysticism because I was a skeptic. Uh, as an undergraduate uh, psychology major at the University of Wisconsin in the 1960s, I thought I, I would write a, a senior honors thesis explaining uh, some psychopathology that caused people to imagine that they saw ghosts and apparitions and had uh, experiences of uh, the presence of God and other things that were reported. But as, as I began reading the literature, uh, I quickly came to realize that the opposite was true, that this was generally not a psychopathology, but a form of higher consciousness. Well, going in as a skeptic, I mean, being a skeptic is really a very healthy position. It doesn't mean what it's been interpreted presently. Um, but when you started and you hadn't had experiences yourself that were sort of like a little different than the norm? You know, as I reflect upon it, those experiences happened after mm -hmm. that that point, after my uh, 
senior year in college and, and my work on that paper, then I began opening up. I was still only about 21 years old, and I did uh, begin having a, a series of, of precognitive dreams that guided me further into uh, starting uh, to work in the radio and uh, eventually pursuing a doctoral degree, an individual interdisciplinary doctoral major in parapsychology. Is it still true you're the only person who has ever received an, from an accredited university? A doctoral diploma in parapsychology? Where the doctoral diploma actually says parapsychology on it. It appears to to the best of my knowledge, and I've really inquired carefully, I'm the only person in the world who has ever received such a doctoral diploma. And to be honest, that's that's sad. For me, I, it's sad. I think for the whole world, and and one of the reasons I'm still doing interviews now is because I think eventually uh, universities and colleges all over the world will institute programs of this sort, and and I want the interviews that I do today, uh, many of them career retrospective interviews with leading people in the field. Uh, wonderful people. They don't have a doctoral diploma in parapsychology, but they're um, most of them much more brilliant than I am, and they uh, are leaving a legacy. Yeah, I was reading some of your transcripts, actually, that you have on your website at newthinkingaloud.com, um, and one of them, or maybe this was off of the uh, mishlove.com, I'm not sure if they're the same, but it was this interview you did with um, death and dying, Stephen Levine, that's who it was. Yes. And um, what was so interesting was the way in which you asked him questions, and one of them was you two were talking about, you know, healing, and you wrote, you said, quote, you seem to be suggesting that ultimately the basis of healing is self-acceptance and acceptance of others, and that they're linked ultimately. So you've now worked in these fields for 40-some years. Is, is, this, is this it? Is this the simple truth? <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been in the field of, of, about as long, and I'm, I'm just sorry that I can't. Uh, apparently, you're not going to come to visit me in Las Vegas so I could interview you. Well, thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate that very much. You never know. I might show up, have to play the slots or something. Well, if if you do keep keep me in mind, but I, I, I do. Will. I love Stephen Levine's answer to that question because he was talking about working with people who are dying and and suggesting that even at the moment of death, there are uh, healings that uh, that take place, and the healing of the physical body, yes, is very important, but it's not the deepest form of healing. No, and what he answered after you said that, he said, quote, when the mind sinks into the heart and vice versa, there's healing. When we become one with ourselves, there's healing. And then you went on later with a, another, and these are really, I mean, for people who don't know some of these people, I mean, your interviews are with the who's who of the who's been and the who is. And one was with Houston Smith. And I love this point that you both were talking about the ecology of nature but there's also an ecology of mind. Mm-hmm. Well, Houston is uh, Houston Smith is still alive, to my understanding, well into his nineties, I believe, and uh, a great uh, soul, a very deep spiritual soul. And I feel very privileged to have uh, 
been able to have, have conducted many interviews with him over the years. Yeah, well, you know, when he wrote about the, uh, what, what was his book called, The Mystical Experience or The Religious? I can't remember anymore. The, the Religions of Man. There you go. Thank you. The Religions of Man. Um, and so you've had this chance now for, you know, 30, 40 years to interview all of these different people with particular interests of your own. So I thought it would be interesting for the audience to hear how you would evaluate what has happened. Let's just pick one area of, um, I don't know, psi consciousness, you know, or non-local consciousness. How have things developed over the last 30 years in that? You know, when I first uh, got into the field in, in the early 1970s, I began doing my interviews and uh, I began my doctoral work in parapsychology at that time. And I, to be honest, I was convinced that there were going to be revolutionary changes and that they were going to happen very quickly. It seemed as if, for example, the remote viewing work uh, mm -hmm. that I, I was involved in and that began at SRI International, a big military industrial think tank, I, I thought that would change everything. And uh, now I look back and, and I can say, no, the revolution hasn't yet occurred, but it will. And uh, one of my colleagues, I think you probably know, Jacques Vallée, mm -hmm. UFO researcher, yes. who's also a computer scientist, uh, remarked to me that he remembers those years very well. And he thought, yes, parapsychology would change the world. And, and he was in on the beginnings of the Internet when it was known as the ARPANET very early on. And he said that had the potential to change the world. And now looking back, we can see the Internet did. But parapsychology has yet to really have the uh, impact that it eventually will have. Um, I guess it's because we're dealing with something deeper, something more profound. And it just, even though there are many, many important breakthroughs going on before the whole society is prepared to understand and integrate those breakthroughs, it, it takes a, um, a, a higher consciousness or, or one might say an evolution of the soul for that to happen on a mass level. And that's just a, a slower process. Yeah, you know, it's in many of the sacred society teachings and indigenous people's cultures, there's an appreciation that all is one. And you talk about that and pretty much anybody who, you know, is focused on where we come from and where are we headed. We're headed back to oneness and to, to the all, to the unity consciousness. And um, it's so interesting to read for how many millennium people have been working on these themes as an internal path. And yet I joke, we're so decrepit now, it almost seems that just having manners has become a spiritual path. Yes, you'd think that in, in some ways there's been a big decline in, in our culture. It's, it's as if as the more and more people are uh, waking up to these spiritual realities, the more and more the uh, darkness also rises up to meet us. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's always, you know, it, well, we'll save that for another time. But I was going to say that it is an interesting phenomenon that people experience. And when we plug astrology into just 
what the average human everywhere on earth is experiencing, it's not an easy time. I mean, we see it in the way it's reflected in body politic worldwide. We see it in climate change. We see it in our inner nature um, of, of how to find balance internally. And and I think one of the larger questions you were asking, and so are many people, is the PK man, so to speak, or the computer person, the person in computer, the abilities we have outside of our person that is mimicked in technology. Mm. Yes, that, that's very interesting. I did a series of uh, interviews with a um, a specialist in robotics and artificial intelligence about whether or not robots will eventually have telepathy and whether they will reincarnate. And um, we, we're on the edge of so many enormous technological breakthroughs and they interact with each other in unpredictable ways. It's, it's quite likely that uh, in a hundred years, people looking back at our era will will realize that we can barely appreciate the lives that they live just as people a hundred years ago would have a hard time appreciating our lives. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to Dr. Thomas Vallone a little earlier from the Integrity Research Institute, and he was commenting how, you know, when science had a choice of understanding the two gradients of energy, one is chemical and the other is energetic. And he said what society chose was the chemical, and we're only now coming to the energetic. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a really um, appropriate description of the shift in paradigms. Uh, That's a good way to look at it, yes. Mm -hmm. So when you have looked back over the years and and now in the present interviewing, you know, all these wonderful mavericks from all these different fields who have devoted their lives to the progress of society, what are some of the bigger things that you think are important to focus on? Because as I've said, you know, now that I've done the 10,000 things, I just want 10. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so just the top 10. What are what are some of those big top tens? If if you look at like the pillars of going further in our human development, well, if if I had to pick one word right now, that word would be um, eco psychology. We have to understand our oneness with nature. Mm-hmm. So many of us are still alienated, alienated from each other, alienated from ourselves, alienated from the animal world and the plant world. And as a result, the whole planet is suffering. Yeah, that is definitely clear. You know, when you listen to anybody out in the Dakotas, you know, trying to protest the pipeline, and they just had that break and 80,000 some gallons of oil spill into a creek and into the, you know, exactly what they're saying, which any human who looks at this thing and you go, what are you crazy? Are we crazy? Well, I think the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we are, people are, are, are stressed out. We live in a world where half of the world is uh, obese and the other half is malnourished. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. No, yeah. The imbalances are just um, so vivid now. You know, I, I almost feel like when you talk with psychologists, you can talk about the shadow side of humanity having been revealed. And we see it, you know, in candidates who get elected to office. We see it in discourse that isn't very balanced. We see it in this this need to say it's either or, you know, it's 
It's one or the other. And and it seems to me that that's the biggest shift in collective um, awareness is this movement away from either or to this and that, which is which is our very ancient teachings, of course. To understand uh, that we're one with uh, with the whole universe, there's nothing that we are really separate from, and yet we act as if others are uh, not only separate from us, but that, that uh, it's just fine if we dominate whatever other uh, we perceive out there. Yeah, true, whether it's the Earth or humans or the weather systems or whatever. We'll be right back. Our guest is Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. Go to www.newthinkingaloud.com. You should watch some of his beautiful YouTube interviews, and you can also go to another website, mishlove.com, which has some of the older programs and transcripts as well, www.newthinkingaloud.com, and we'll be right back. Hi, this is Paul H. Smith former military remote viewer and current remote viewing instructor. Our website is www.rviewer.com. And you are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, metaphysical queen of the airwaves. And also a correction of I misspoke. I said that Tom Valone said there were these two gradients. One was the chemical, and we saw that as the direction science went. And I said the other was energetic. It was not. It's electrical. So it's chemical and electrical. And so, Jeffrey, what Dr. Valone was saying is that we're just now coming into really exploring the electrical dimension of everything, ourselves, our relationship to the cosmos, the planet. And I thought it was a really interesting way to talk about why it's taken us so long in the last 100 or 200 years to come round again to the elements of light that are not restrained by physical form, such as consciousness. Okay, I see. I see. Uh, well, I'm not familiar with Dr. Valone, but uh, uh, that is an interesting point of view. Light itself has some really extraordinary uh, properties, and, and light is a form of electromagnetic energy. Uh, you know, a photon can travel from here to the end of uh, the universe, and no time will have passed. Right, so beam us up. If I mean, you're, you know, it's... Riding on the photon, yeah. Well, the, I think as, as you have probably found, and I have found as well, there aren't many people like us. You know, we're like two of those unusual folk, um, and Dr. Bob, and others who have had this... Um, not only devotion, but an opportunity to have interviewed so many incredible men and women and occasionally children from around the world um, who have devoted their lives to things outside the box. What have you found about this community of people in general? How would you describe them as um, just a group of human beings? They are, to me, the most wonderful people in the world, open-hearted, loving uh, extremely intelligent, compassionate, and, and people who apply their intelligence to the uh, betterment of humanity. I, I can't think of people I love more. Yeah, the thing that I've noticed over all these decades, one extraordinary discovery I made was sort of happenstance. Um, I discovered that a good percentage, maybe 80% at one point in my work, all live near water. Oh, well, that... That's interesting. Yeah, so here, and here am I living in the middle of the Mojave Desert, um, although there is a lake nearby. 
<laughs> but it was my guest, not me, though I go to the river a lot. <laughs> I, I thought it was so interesting that these people who are such mavericks have spent so much of their life near water. And so when you talk about, you know, we are mostly water beings, it just magnified to me how when we are close to water, it expands us as humans because it sort of, I always, my experience of it when I go to the water is it's almost like disconnecting all of the static electricity. Hmm. And well, so, I, you, you know, Zohara, I wonder if it's not something astrological for you because in, for me personally, I love the mountains. The mountains do that for me. Well, I'm sure the elements of the earth or the water or the air or the fire would would certainly show up in our charts. But I, I don't I didn't know whether you had noticed, you know, some sort of geographic um, pattern in your guest or even asked. The reason I asked it is because like when I used to interview a lot of UFO people who worked with abductees and for years, literally for about two decades, I kept asking on and off, well, has anybody done an analysis of the blood type of the abductees? And there hadn't been until very recently. And so it's the same kind of thing. I'm a, I'm a pattern person. So I like to see the patterns and things. And the thing that I've discovered about all the kinds of mavericks you and I and others have had the pleasure of knowing and um, sort of, you know, giving, giving them a, a microphone or a TV tube to be seen is that all of them have faced extraordinary challenge. Mm-hmm. And that rather than quitting, it, it really, um, what's the right word, fostered greater devotion. When, when you're in touch with your passion, you really feel uh, ready to face those challenges, and they, they come. So when you then you know, start to look at all the different things that you're interested in and cover, is there an area that you feel has come along the furthest? area that has come along. Well, for instance, you know, you look at alternative medicine. That's just one area that you have covered. Intuition. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I would say that uh, probably the the one that has come along the furthest is, is the one for which there is the greatest need, and that is environmental sensitivity and ecology. I know there mm-hmm. are thousands and thousands of scientists working in that area uh, today as compared, let's say, to parapsychology yeah. where we have just a couple hundred uh, poorly paid and poorly funded researchers working in that area. So mm-hmm. um, I think just about everybody today understands that, that there are people working on, on the environment, that this is a very important area that we need to pay attention to. And, and I remember when I first started, why the word ecology wasn't uh, even known at all. People mm-hmm. hadn't heard that word. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And and then what about in the area of social responsibility? I know that was a, a specific interest of yours. It, it certainly was. And um, it, at the time that I took uh, an interest, it was a very fringe area. There were people protesting uh, nuclear wet war, for example, but not, not too much. And now uh, I think... It's fair to say that uh, social protests have become widespread and, and, and are accepted as a part of our culture, and, and these protests occur from 
all elements of society. Um, so, so yes, there is more social awareness. You know, I read an interesting quote. I don't remember where I came across it by Howard Zinn, who I interviewed years ago. And recently he was quoted as saying, we don't need more obedience. We need more disobedience, <laughs> meaning we have a humanity who has obeyed for centuries and go to war and lose their lives and fight over nothing other than somebody's power idea of who should be in control of what territory and what commodity. And I thought it was a really astute sort of one sentence. It reminds me of uh, bumper stickers that I used to see when I was um, an undergraduate in college in my formative years. They simply said, question authority. Yeah, for sure. I'm a big advocate of that. And I didn't realize that the Buddha, until his dying day, told all of his students not to have a teacher, meaning follow no master mm -hmm. other than your own actual inner experience and transformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they... Uh, Someone wrote a book uh, titled, If You See the Buddha on the Road, Kill Him. Right. That seems to me to have changed. You know, in the 60s, and that we could look at astrologically, we won't, but we could in terms of where the Pluto is in a generation. And for the generation that you and I came out of, Pluto was in Leo, which was this sort of big social experiment and family and community and, you know, love all. <laughs> it's having a a, a, a big, um, what's the right word, a pride. Um it doesn't seem that there's that big need right now to follow and that there's more of an individuation taking place. Almost a reaction against the uh, values of the generation of the 1960s. Mm -hmm. uh, to some extent, we believed in inclusiveness and equality and, and, and we're all in it together. And now there seems to be a group of young people who are saying, no, no, we're, we're separate. We want to keep our own identities. And uh, it, we think it's a good idea that uh, men and women are very different from each other. And if one group is privileged and another group isn't, uh, that's because of natural superiority. And it's, it's the way things should be. So it's, it's like a a pull in the other direction and and in a way that's a healthy dialogue i um i hope i simply hope that people are willing to to have that conversation talk about it mhm mm so when you look at some of the other areas that thinking aloud series particularly when when you are on public television and now newthinkingaloud.com on YouTube another area that you have focused on is global awareness in general and certainly the internet has fostered this um awareness of event but I don't sense that it is deepening the conversation it's so hard to say because the conversation has become so um, public and, and there's so many voices that are now permitted and there's also on the internet uh, a strong movement. Uh, you could think of it, to put it in the most positive light, it's the unconscious becoming conscious. Mm -hmm. And and so it's, it's a lot of nastiness, a yeah. lot of uh, self-loathing and loathing of other people and the willingness to be rude and insulting. That's, that's what's coming to the foreground now in, in our culture. And uh, it it really is demanding of us as, as, as a culture, uh, a, a quality of self-mastery, which yeah. uh, is, 
is lacking. Well, you know, that's what I wrote my books on. At least one of them specifically looked at actually the ancient Hebrew tradition, the Judaic tradition of self-mastery through the sanctuary process that the Hebrews went through while they're traveling in the desert, lugging all that stuff around. Mm -hmm. And I believe also that that is the big work is self-refinement and self-mastery or self-cultivation. And when you have a culture that doesn't promote self-refinement and self-control, but celebrates the rudest and most hideous, um, from that you don't get a healthy society. No, in fact, it reminds me very much of the period of the uh, decline of the Roman Empire when you had uh, all of the uh, Vandals and the Goths and the Visigoths and uh, people just sort of trying to tear down the system Mm -hmm. and succeeded to a large degree. And and, uh, as a result, European culture entered into a period that we call the Dark Ages. Yeah, well, there are a lot of people rather concerned about where we really are versus where we think we are. Um, And that's always kind of interesting for the individual and the society in general. How much does imagery affect either the individual or the social well-being of a whole culture? Well, we're surrounded by imagery. We live in a a world that... uh, Let me take it a step deeper, because um, now I'm reminded of an interesting interview I did with Leonard Schlein, the Mm -hmm. man who wrote The Alphabet versus The Goddess. And there are some cultures where imagery is is forbidden, and they tend to be the same cultures uh, that um, promote, over history, have promoted the alphabet uh, in, in when we get into literacy and writing, we begin to have a uh, a very linear mindset, and and that was associated historically with male dominance and mm-hmm. patriarchy. And as now we live in a different age, for example, we have film and video and movies and graphics everywhere you go on the internet. Well, that uh, kind of imagery uh, is actually the um, associated in Leonard Schlein's viewpoint, and I think he makes a very good argument, with feminine culture and and the rise of uh, equality between men and women, which people uh, who are still attached to patriarchy uh, find that very threatening. As you look at all these um, different fields of mind-body and alternative medicine and body work, and these were like different kind of points, but they're all related. I've I've watched an alternative medicine. I mean, you mentioned, you know, an environmental sensitivity and awareness um, as being an, an obvious change. And I would say also that the influence of um, alternative medicine or integrative medicine is really here to stay. I mean, there could be things that the system could do to rule it out, but I don't think the populace is going to rule it out again. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. At the uh, very beginning, uh, uh, back back when I was an undergraduate in college, they talked about a few things like the placebo effect, uh, but there there wasn't a whole discipline of mind-body 
medicine. They didn't know, for example, when I was an undergraduate student, uh, that individuals are capable of controlling their own heartbeat, controlling their own brain waves, controlling uh, their galvanic skin response. These were all thought to be uh, outside of consciousness, outside of conscious control. Now we have uh, vast disciplines uh, associated with the integration of the mind and body. So that, that's that been a very profound cultural movement uh, over the last uh, 40 years. Yeah, and, and to me, the connections are somewhat clear between the environmental awareness, which is the body of the earth. We've become aware of the body of the earth, and we've become aware of the body of our own, of of how consciousness in our own body, where we haven't gone where all the indigenous peoples have always been, is consciousness affects the earth's body too. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about the progress that we've made, it's sort of like starting with the most physical and the most dense, and then we're going to move out from there. Not that there aren't already, you know, researchers looking at the other areas, but it's, it's so interesting to see the two things happen concurrently. You know, this awareness of the body's ability to heal through light and color and sound and frequency and thought and prayer and love and all these true things. And then the same thing with the earth. We understand what heals the earth. And it's all the same. I mean, even just speaking I love you to the water at high tide is helpful to the earth. You know, some people think that's pretty stupid. But when you look at the science of it, you appreciate that it's real because love is a really profound unifier. Yes, yes, it, indeed. Love is love is pretty central, and and the uh, to me another very uh, important unifier. Well, it's the idea of unity itself that that uh, anyone who experiences uh, higher consciousness realizes right away there there is no separation. Mm -hmm. We we are one with the most distant stars and galaxies. In fact, our bodies are made out of. Uh, stardust from exploding uh, supernovas and uh, light years away. When a Steiner used to say, when a human evolves and no longer needs a body and doesn't need to reincarnate into a body, our consciousness becomes a star. We become carbon matter. And I, I you know, it's so interesting to me that when you start on these paths of seeking as a younger person and then you spend your lifetime on the path and then towards the towards the ending of your lifetime in that last quarter century period, you realize exactly what all the masters have said. You know, there is no, you know, um, revelation or realization outside of daily life, meaning, you know, yes, chop wood, carry water. Mm -hmm. It's all there in front of our eyes. And uh, since you mentioned the autumn of our life or the winter of our life, I'm profoundly aware of that uh, at this moment because I know you I don't think uh, I ever mentioned this to you when we scheduled the program today but this is my 70th birthday happy birthday Jeffrey thank you so I, I feel like now I'm officially an elder well you are you know interestingly enough and I mentioned this to Tom Valone I recently talked to Dr. Ray Moody we were just mm -hmm. having a conversation and he's also in his early 70s and he was saying how he now understands what Plato meant. Plato said that when you turn 70, you have a real understanding. And by the way, the Sanhedrin in the Jewish tradition were mm -hmm. 70 elders. Oh, uh, yes. Nonetheless, um, that when you turn 70, you really do have a profound understanding of your purpose. Mm -hmm. 
because you can see the beginning of cycles and you're moving towards the end of cycles. So you have a much bigger sense of the circle. I, I did an interesting interview years ago with a medical doctor and healer named Brew Joy. And oh, yes, I remember Brew Joy. He shared with me his insight that there are certain initiations that uh, are reserved for people. Some you, you, you won't have until you pass 70. Others are waiting for you when you pass 80. Mm-hmm. You have to be at least 80 to experience those levels. We're going to take a brief break. We'll be right back. Our guest is Dr. Jeffrey Mishlov. You can learn more and take part in watching his beautiful programs, www.newthinkingaloud.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Shainer, author of The Emerging Mind and Bat Sing, Mice Giggle, also a professor of psychology and neuroscience and a clinical psychologist in private practice. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohar Hieronymus. So, Jeffrey, I want to come back to um, another quote that I came across when you and Stephen Levine, who passed away earlier this year and did so much to advance our understanding of death and dying and, and healing, actually, that dying is this healing journey. Can I read this little story that you exchanged? Yes. It was, um, Stephen said that there was a story about a woman who was told she had cancer, and her doctor said, quote, Well, it doesn't look like you have long to go. She went to the West Coast. She thought she'd have a couple of days on the beach a couple of weeks before she died. She met a healer. The healer lay his hands on her. She was well. A week later, she committed suicide. She said, Well, if it was that easy to heal me, I don't deserve to live, unquote. Because, he said, that healer forgot to say to her, I didn't heal you. You healed you. God healed you. You've done so much work. Look how easy it was for you to heal. And then he closes by saying, when the healer takes possession of healing, he, she, actually injures that person instead of helps them. Can you share a little bit more about this exchange? Mm, Well, Stephen Levine, I say Stephen, uh, although... He may be Stephen. (laughs) He... He was a very big-hearted person and a very a deep, deep person to be around. And, and he would distinguish between uh, superficial notions of healing. This gets back to his idea of, of the healing of the heart and how uh, so it's so much more important than just healing the, the body. Uh, I, I'm reminded of uh, some of the work by, uh, the name escapes me, but he was one of the first medical doctors uh, to do plastic surgery. And he discovered that he could make people look beautiful, but if they didn't change inside, they didn't feel any better. They, they had all the same uh, depressions and, and self-image problems that they had before uh, they engaged in the plastic surgery. So if, if we ignore what's going on in our depths, in our psyche, in our hearts and souls, then um, he, the healing of the physical body uh, can be incomplete. And, and this is a very sad case of a woman who, who took her life. Um, but I recently had a, uh, a close friend who, who took his life, and he did it legally because... Uh, he lived in Oregon, and he was suffering from cancer. The doctors had told him 
that he had only six months to live, and that was six years ago. Mm-hmm. And he fought it and fought it uh, brilliantly and shared with me many of the dietary and spiritual uh, methods that he was using. But finally, uh, he reached a point where the cancer was getting the best of him, and he decided to take advantage of the death with dignity laws that exist in Oregon and choose the uh, time and place and means of of his own death. And so he experienced a a peaceful death relatively rather than, you know, continuing on in agony for for months. And Mm -hmm. uh, I commend him for his courage. I've learned that very few people in the state of Oregon take advantage of, of that law. But in this instance, even though I know it goes against many traditional religious uh, prohibitions, I, th- I think it was the wise thing. And I think the, the state of Oregon has uh, put into place a very good uh, mechanism for that. One of the things that in that conversation you two shared, and, and I know he teaches this a great deal, and I just think it's worth sharing, that um, in the meditative work, as you pointed out, if you can soften the belly and soften the heart and soften the breathing, this is what you said, mm-hmm. that that creates a state of surrendering to some kind of essential healing that's there available for all of us. And I, and I share it because I really think that these very simple truths are so profound when we practice them and they're not really shared in a way that says to somebody, look, you want just a few tools in your toolkit when you're really feeling out of sorts or you're really sick or you're really challenged? Well, do this. You know, soften your belly, soften your heart, soften your breathing. What are some of the the key techniques or tools that you've come across over the decades that perhaps you still use in your own life? Uh, Sometimes it takes only the slightest shift in in consciousness to open up a whole new dimension of awareness. It's as if we are are so close to being in enlightened it's just this mm-hmm. veil of uh, mystery that, that that separates us and and the veil can be lifted so easily at times and and of course at other times it seems like it can never happen and that's probably because we try to give it too much effort rather than uh, softening uh, so when, when it comes to the question of um, when when do you apply a lot of effort and when do you just sort of relax and let it happen? Mm-hmm. I, I could give you a story from my own life because it does have to do with the question of how I got started sure. in uh, the media. Back in 1972, uh, before I began my uh, life's work in, in media and in parapsychology, I was a graduate student in criminology at the University of California. And I got a master's degree in criminology. I did field work at San Quentin Prison. and But I knew inside that something was wrong, that I had to, uh, or, or that my deepest desire, I should say, was to focus on the positive forms of uh, human deviance, not the negative forms of human deviance. Um, but at the time at the university where I was, there were, you could study crime, you could study psychopathology, but if you wanted to study mysticism, intuition, creativity, there were no vehicles 
for that, no programs at all. And, and I agonized and agonized over this for months and months. I gave it a lot of effort. I gave it a lot of struggle. For, and I think that's important. It's important that I did that. But the day came when I let go and I just relaxed. And I knew when I did that, that the answer was going to come to me, and it was going to come to me that very day, and it would come in a dream. I just knew that. And uh, I, I did, in fact, have a, a dream that night. And uh, I don't think I need to go into all the details of, of the dream, but it, the dream uh, was about uh, visiting some friends, and I got into their apartment, and I saw a magazine sitting on the floor of their living room, and I was paging through it and uh, I woke up and I had this feeling of exhilaration like I have the answer now but of course I didn't know what the answer was I just knew that I had it so I actually put on my tennis shoes and ran across town got to that apartment knocked on the door uh, no one was home but in the dream I let myself in because I knew where the key was and actually I did know where they kept the key and let myself in and there I found a magazine sitting in the middle of the floor just as I had dreamt and as I began paging through that magazine it was the magazine for listeners sponsored radio and television in the San Francisco area where I lived and I didn't own a radio or TV in those days. I didn't believe in it. I, I was such a long-haired hippie at that point. I thought the only authentic human communication was face-to-face -face and not electronic. And, but I changed my mind and I went and volunteered at the local Pacifica radio station in Berkeley. And within three weeks, I had my own radio show twice a week with 10,000 people listening in and my life had been dramatically transformed. So the lesson in all of this, I think, is, yes, struggle and struggle. It's important uh, to, you know, and even be tense about it, to be really intent and focused. But then the day comes when you let go and just let everything happen that you've been seeking. And when you're focused on becoming the best person that you can be, the universe will reach out to you. There, there will be invisible powers that will help you all the way. That's a beautiful way to put it. It reminds me, Stefan Schwartz will say that, you know, that if you um, really just choose life-affirming, life-elevating choices every time you're given a choice, whether it's, you know, going somewhere or buying something, that it ends up for the better. It's really beautiful advice. And that's what I mean. It's like, you know, after you've done that, I now say, after I've done the 10,000 things, now I just want the ten. <laughs> so that sounds like a good book title, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Follow up with newthinkingaloud.com and mishlove, M-I-S-H-L-O-V-E.com. And that's the show. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington, and I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus.